0: I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Series 2 of Scaling Up.
1: How do you make sure that you are open and honest and transparent and are listening and responsive and make the customers feel that way, right? And the only way you can do that as a software technology company is you've got to have people doing it.
0: This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Welcome to another episode of Scaling Up and Jonathan Corr is my guest today. Jonathan's the current CEO of Ellie May, and this episode is a wonderful deep dive into the world of highly experienced CEO, who's had the benefit of seeing the full spectrum of the growth curve. Ellie listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 2011, relatively early in its journey, and since then, Jonathan has overseen and come through all the common scaling challenges, from replatforming their technology stack, to changes in their business model, and by far the biggest challenge, scaling the people and culture of the business. This has happened all the while being a listed public company and facing the volatility that that brings. Jonathan gives great insight into all these challenges and unsurprisingly was incredibly transparent in relation to the takeover of Ellie Mae by Toma Bravo, a large and successful technology private equity company for US $3.7 billion in 2019. For those that don't know, Ellie May sells software to the mortgage industry, streamlining and automating the process of originating and funding new mortgage loans, as well as facilitating regulatory compliance. As you can imagine, mortgage brokers and banks love their software, and this is reflected in Ellie Mae's 35% market share. It's a phenomenal growth story, unsurprisingly wrapped up in the importance of great people all working under a common mission. We love hearing from listeners. I'm on Twitter, at Eddie Cowan, as is TDM, at TDM underscore growth. The whole TDM team is now blogging on Medium as well, and if you're interested in reading more insights from the team, look out for our new publication, TDM Tidbits. There are some great posts there already. It has to be mentioned at the top that all episodes in this series were recorded in the first week of March 2020. At the time, the US had just a total of 92 recorded cases of COVID-19, And the general sense, unfortunately, was one of business as usual. The world, as we now know, is a very different place. All comments throughout the series need to be taken with this timestamp in mind. And to be honest, it was actually tempting not to release these episodes, as the state of play for all businesses across the country is changing so quickly. But I think the messages of this series are timeless. And a lot of them actually will assist leaders in their thought process when dealing with the current crisis. Above all else though, when deciding to release these episodes, I'm of the very firm belief that everyone is in need of a big shot of inspiration at the moment, and I hope in many ways this can provide that. Jonathan Cole, welcome to Scaling Up, longtime CEO of Ellie May, which as I said in the introduction is the leading software to the mortgage industry love to get straight into this. When you started here, you came in as the COO under a very big personality, but a, a big teddy bear of Sig Anderman. I'd love just initially to give some relationship insight and also your transition into your role as CEO. Sig obviously stayed on the board. Yeah. And how that transition was managed.
1: Yeah, it's it's great to be here talking with you, Ed. And um, Actually, I, I'll correct you on that. I actually started as the, the chief strategy officer. Okay. But, you know, I've been here almost 18 years now. So, you know, the, the company was a, a bit different uh, way back 18 years ago. But I'd say that the the, the North Star, where we were going, automating everything automatable, um, was the same then as it's been all the way through the years. And so, you know, I joined as the product guy to, to help... Uh, the team and SIG, you know, the, the concept entrepreneur, deliver on the vision around that. And, and, and initially, you know, obviously it was encompass, you know, geared towards on-premise. And we can talk a little bit about that transition at some point. And so, you know, over the years, going from, you know, the, the chief strategy officer to COO and COO and president, and then ultimately CEO about five years ago, you know, a lot of folks asked, you know, what's going to change when you become CEO? And you know the fact is very little changed. Um, it was fundamentally just a different guy with the title. In, in many ways, because the growing of the company, what we created, Sig and I were partners together. You know, I was the the product, the technology guy, kind of the the balance. You know, he was the the entrepreneur, kind of you know thinking about all these different ideas for quite a while. And over time, we just became this great team working together. So you know, by the time we got to a place where You know, it was time for him to pass the baton of of CEO to me. I kind of already been operating that role probably for three or four years as president. And then taking on, you know, the title and the seat um, was just a natural transition. It wasn't like it was something that he wanted to keep doing it. You know, he stepped to the chairman role. And the strategy that we had, how we were operating, you know, the, the nice thing there was You know, these were things that we had actually created together over the years. Mm. You know, I give Sig a tremendous amount of credit to be able to step back and, you know, lay his hands off and, and let me do what I needed to do. Because you can imagine as an entrepreneur, that's tough to do. So I do think, you know, the transition that we managed, you know, over that period of time went off incredibly smoothly. Um, and he continued to stay on as, as exec chair and my mentor. And it, it was a, a, a great partnership.
0: I'm interested in the culture that's been created initially by SIG and, and really been carried on by you. Because as investors, you do a, a lot of customer calls. You talk to past employees. Customers love this business. No one will say a bad word about it. And every single well, one, you, you can hardly find a former employee. But when you do, they all love their time here. Everyone raves about working here. What has been the magic dust that you've been able to sprinkle on the culture of this business?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's um, staying true to two kind of pillars, if you will. And I think this is what brings people together, knowing that they have a common vision or North Star. So, you know, as I said, the North Star of automating everything, automatable in the industry has been a constant all the way through. How we've gotten there has obviously changed. You know, just as you're sailing a, a ship towards a North Star, you've got currents and winds and all kinds of different challenges that we 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 faced as a company over 20 years. But that, you know, alignment for the organization is really a very helpful, in some ways, you know, this invisible hand to keep things going. The other side is the culture of the company. And the culture, in many ways, just started with, with SIG pretty quickly as he surrounded himself with people, you know, folks that, that shared uh, a common viewpoint, and then the culture really became the people here. And so, you know, it's always been, in many ways we just talk about, you know, a high-tech company with old-fashioned values, but it's it's been about, you know, being focused on our customers, building great products, great services, um, and really thinking about the relationship with our customers as a partnership, as a relationship. And so knowing that that is the case, you know, how do you make sure that you are open and honest and transparent and are listening and responsive and make the customers feel that way, right? And, you know, you layer on top of that, the only way you can do that as a software or technology company is you've got to have people doing it. You know, you, you have very little in terms of physical assets. It's all about the people. It's about the teammates. And so doing the same thing, which is how do we create an environment where they feel, the the employees feel supported. They feel like they can speak up, um, that they can be open, that they can challenge each other in respectful ways, that the the company's supporting them to do what they need to do. And those two pieces kind of create this dynamic where you end up with a bunch of folks that really care about customers, each other, and they care about their community, right? They, they actually are caring people. And so a big part of who Ellie Mae is has been from very early giving back and, you know, you know kind of paying it forward and sharing our good fortune with, with uh, our communities around us and people that aren't, you know, don't have the same privileges. And you create an environment like that and, you know, really people love working here. We've had people that have, have worked here for, you know, 15-plus years, 20 years Know, from the very beginning and you know when you ask people why they're still here or why they come they say it's because what they've heard of the culture so you know it, it isn't kind of a magic formula it's kind of a just kind of you know best intention mm-hmm. and doing the right thing and you know and what comes out of that and that's kind of been what it's all been about
0: a lot of technology companies see a natural friction point at a hundred people and then maybe 500 people you know you talk about this culture have you thought about scaling it as the business has grown? It's now a very big business. And so not only have you had to scale the people at the front line, but naturally your executive team have certain ceilings. And I know there has been some executive reboot over the years. Have you thought about that sort of coaching mentality as a CEO versus the person that rips the Band-Aid off knowing that someone may have reached their ceiling?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a great question. And... You know, for a long time, you know, we were probably in the, the 150 to 200 employee range. Um, kind of, we were just under that when we took the company public um, in 2011. And, you know, quickly we went on a, a trajectory of, of growth. And you know, as we sit today, we're, you know, well over 1,700 people. And what we recognized early on was it was about culture and maintaining that. And so as we thought about that, We wanted to bring, obviously, bring in all kinds of new people and and, and new thoughts, but at the same time, make sure those, those values and that foundation carried itself forward. So we really instituted probably right around 200 people this idea of employee onboarding, where every single employee, whether they're here at this location, we bring them on remotely, any acquisitions we do comes through a multi-day orientation or onboarding, as we call it, at Ellie May. And I speak to him, Sig used to speak to him, Joe Terrell, many of the other leaders, telling them the vision, the North Star, the culture, the values, um, what we expect of them, what they can expect from us, helping them understand this business, because a lot of people don't come from necessarily the mortgage industry. I didn't initially. And so that has been really this kind of foundation that everybody goes through. And it, it kind of you know gets people on the you know, common playing field. The other thing that, that I've instituted probably over the last four or five years is this whole concept of, you know we've done quarterly meetings since the very beginning. I think we've done, I don't know, some crazy number, like 80 something quarterly meetings. But as we were scaling, because when you're at 200 people, you can pretty much know everybody. And I felt like I did, and as we grew, I still knew people. But, you know, we wanted to maintain that that two-way communication. So we introduced this whole idea of the virtual town hall, which we do every single month. And I'll speak either from my office or from another location we have in the building. And we'll bring in all kinds of, of guests. It's almost like being on, like, a, the news desk of Saturday Night Live. And, you know, we share, we keep it entertaining. But the whole idea is to have that continuous communication of what's going on. And let people ask questions. We do this, uh, you know, ask Jonathan every time. So there's a lot of things we do like that. So just maintain that that culture element of it. I'm also a very big fan of um, this whole idea of organizational health. Patrick Lencioni writes a lot about it in his various books. But you know, he wrote this this book called The Advantage, and the whole idea of how do you establish the organization where. Trust is a foundation. And then you build on that all the way where you, you know, we talk about one team, one score, one star, that North Star where everybody's coming together as one team and one score to make the customer successful. And so it's very important to me that, you know, as we evolve, as we bring on leaders, we try to make sure that they they fit into that mold. Sometimes we discover that they don't. And, you know, the worst thing that can happen, you know, in an organization is when leadership is not aligned as one horizontal team, right? You, you kind of, it's almost like, you know, if the parents are arguing, it kind of carries down to, to, the, to the kids and the troops. And so, you know, I, I've been very conscious of creating an organization where there is this healthy dynamic between the leadership. And I think, you know, we've actually gotten to that place in a, in a really good way today but we've definitely had to make changes along the way. And you got to make them quickly. you got to, as the CEO, if you see you've made a mistake, you got to you know, set the example you made that mistake, make that change, and, uh, and people respect that. So I think that that's really important. I think there's no
0: doubt that people respect a, a leader that can make decisive action and put up their hand and then yeah. say, that one's on me, I, yeah. I stuffed it up. I do later want to talk about the public market's a little bit, but in relation to the culture of this business and the public markets, you were a public company CEO for a long time, quarterly reporting over here in the US. A lot of investors have this short-term, quarter-to-quarter mindset, and yet, aside from the beautiful software that that you're selling that is just such a a phenomenal product, the greatest source of your long-term competitive advantage is is probably the people within the organisation. So how did you marry up this investor short-termism with knowing that at the end of the day, it was often the people that were going to make the difference in the long term. Is there a way CEOs can better communicate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is about communication. And, you know, definitely as a public company, um, what's nice about that, what I really enjoyed about that, right, was the ability to go out and tell the story and meet with lots of folks and hear their perspectives, hear their questions. You know, it was very rewarding. Obviously, um, the things you have to deal with, the opportunity or the challenge, however it is, is the quarterly dynamic and, you know, the, the focus on the quarterly results. And I think you can do a fair amount of managing that with, uh, with investors. Ellie May was in a little bit different position in that, you know, we weren't a pure SaaS company. You know, we were this, uh, I think what I used to say is the best of both worlds, kind of a, a SaaS company with a transactional component. So it was kind of a, a call option on on industry volume, which was, you know, quite a few of our investors like your, yourselves at, at, uh, at TDM really understood that. They understood what we had created in terms of a culture, in terms of a, uh, a footprint and an ecosystem and a network effect and incredible stickiness and really quite horizon to keep doing that. A lot of investors didn't get that complete picture. They kind of looked at us as, well, this is a SaaS company that makes money. Your growth is about this level, but if you're a growth company, your growth should be over this level. But you know, how do we think about this combination of things, right? You know, One of the things I always used to you know, kind of scratch my head at as the CEO, because I always think about business as you know, the value of a business is the the cash stream, the dividend you create over time, right? The, the value for your shareholders. And, you know, if we'd miss by a by a penny or two on, on growth, on revenue, but beat by 10 cents on profit, a lot of the market didn't like that. Yeah. And that was always very counterintuitive. So, again, it was, you know, telling the story and, and helping people understand it. And we were in a bit of a, I think, a, a challenging position. And it, it, it obviously led to, um, you know, what we had to do Ultimately, in making the decision to go from public to private, because as a public company, you know, I had some 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 different folks that worked for me, and I had an interim CFO um, while we were in the transition. And she said, "Well, why don't we just you know tell the market we're going to do this?" And I said, "Well, you know, if it was our company, right, we can make any decision we want. But you know, as a public company um, CEO and and, and CFO, you, you have to you know understand that that's a huge amount of your constituency." And you have an obligation there, and the board has an obligation there. I wish it was as easy as that. And and sometimes you know the public markets you know are not really thinking. Or at least some public investors are not really thinking about the long term. They're thinking about you know the trading and the trading ability and something in a short term. Well, then you've got a great set of investors that really you know align with the long term story. And when you have conversations with them, um, like I used to have with. Um, some of the folks on your team, you know Tom in particular, and say, you know, this is what we're thinking about. This is how we're going to do it. It was like, yeah, absolutely. We're long-term investors. We see that. Um, unfortunately, you know, you got to balance that. You don't have that completely as a public company CEO.
0: One of the other major scaling pain points, and you know, it might turn you a bit white in the face yeah. even talking about this, but there was a full technology stack re platform. Yep. the yeah. the platform went down and when when you have a, you know, 35% market share, yeah. that is big news. So yeah, you had to, you know, replatform at significant cost, you know, while being a public company, while trying to service your customers, and you could almost describe it as, you know, swapping out the engine of a jet plane while you're flying at 10,000 feet. So I'm curious as to how you thought about this and how you actively manage this and came through the other side as you have done.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's a great great analogy, you know, changing the engine in a flying plane. Um I, we've we've used that term so I like that. Um you know, it's it's an interesting dynamic cuz you know, we knew I mean, the platform that we we were on was foundationally the same thing we used to create, you know, the on-premise uh seed of the solution back in 2003 and 4. And obviously had incredible success with it, transitioned it, you know, to a, you know, software as a service in the cloud, multi-tenancy, but still architecturally more of a, you know, a monolith than a bunch of, of microservices. And it's not that we, we reacted. We, we kind of knew we wanted to do this all along, but it was, we didn't get to a position where, you know, we thought we could manage the market uh, till, you know, uh, when we started down this path. Now, the other kind of interesting dynamic for us is there are things that happen in this market that we don't know are going to happen, Um, you know, regulatory change, um, all the things that came out of the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and all those things are not always telegraphed. We usually don't know about them until about a couple years ahead of time. So every time we were going down a path to get there quicker, um, you know, some of those things would come into play. We also made a very conscious decision, and this was more of, a, I think, a you know, kind of a business decision based on what we'd seen previously. Which is, you know, we wanted to make sure that as we transitioned the platform, it wasn't a I go from one platform to the other. Let's call it, think about it, rip and replace type of concept, which is, you know, obviously very prevalent in the on-premise model. But you know, even in the SaaS model, if you if you massively change the experience for folks. How do you manage that and then not introduce an opportunity for them to think about, is it time to switch? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make it the least disruptive as possible, kind of like a changing everything behind the, behind the scenes. But doing that obviously takes even more time and discipline and thought through architecture. And it obviously puts more pressure on multiple costs at the same time. And I think, you know, we did a really good job of that. Um, with the public market in setting that expectation. So I think we did that well. But, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah. You're listening
0: to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. You listed as a very small business. I think you only had maybe $60 million of revenue in, yeah. in 2011. So a, a small listing. And at the time, you were, as you say, an on-premise license and, and maintenance business. And so in your life as a public company, you had to completely change the model to SaaS, as, as you mentioned. How did you think about that transition?
1: Well, you know, we, we were actually somewhat fortunate in that we were small enough and we had made a portion of the transition. So, you know, if we look back when we were we went public in in uh, April 2011, we were probably 15-20% SaaS already, right? So it was a small percentage, but the the thing that many companies go through is the blip where you're going from zero to that first amount and you start transitioning from that that revenue recognition of big licenses versus, you know, monthly ratable. One, we had kind of done, gotten through most of that, and we were small enough that, you know, it, it wasn't as apparent that, you know, it would be with a, a much bigger company that had a much bigger footprint of that. And so, you know, one of the things that worked out nicely there was having started it, And then, you know, we were on a trajectory where basically all our new business was SaaS. And we slowly but surely transitioned folks from the maintenance stream to the SaaS model. And, you know, the nice thing there was the way we structured the model. And, you know, people find this hard to believe, but we actually were getting a lot more on an annualized basis on the SaaS model because we kind of took a little bit different um, viewpoint where our old license maintenance model was around one piece of our software. As we shifted to SaaS, we shifted to a model that we called success-based pricing. And that allowed us to package a whole bunch of our other solutions into the same solution. It's kind of like selling, instead of you know, continuing to just sell Microsoft, you know, Excel, and Word, you sell Office and you package it all together. And so with that you're you're able to go with a value prop where you're delivering a lot more value, you can take a lot more of the wallet share of the customer. And so that was fortunate. I think we also uh got the benefit as we went through 2012 of the market volume picked up. We we benefit from that because that's part of the success-based pricing model and then we were well on our way. But, you know, it's it's again, it's a uh it's something that, from my perspective, I think we did it at a certain pace. I probably would have done it faster uh, if I could have uh, in retrospect. But again, I think we were we were fortunate that we had started down the path.
0: Yeah, we're talking about the public market volatility, and we'll yep. dig into that a little bit in a second. But this sort of variability of the business model is is so natural for Ellie May. Uh, but so heavily and sort of explicitly linked to mortgage volumes. And and there's this mismatching with the quarterly earnings reporting. How did you think about this incongruous nature of the business model from a macro point of view?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because when we came up with success-based pricing, which obviously added variability, we could have went down a model where everything was more tied to subscription. But what we kind of figured out before we went public was – You know, the way the industry operates, their success is based on doing more business for more consumers. And they think about the world in a variable basis. And so we were only having a certain level of success selling the SaaS model when it was straight, just seat. But when we then packaged things together and we aligned it with our customers, you know, their success being ours, it took off. And so what became evident you know, independent of what would ultimately be the public market view was if you were going to maximize revenue and profits, you were better off going down a success-based pricing model than a pure SaaS model because you could never get the same level of economics from customers because they wouldn't be willing to pay that level of a, of a seat price. And, and obviously that contributed to our growth. As we became a public company, you know, one of the things that we really tried to help the market understand, especially early, was this really looks like a SaaS company. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't worry about the volume. Think about, you know, the fundamental secular shift that's going on, us picking up share, the market moving digital, the market moving from the way they were doing things, moving from paper to electronics. Yes, the industry moves around us. It's variable, just like other other industries that have some cyclicality to them. But what's going on with us is we're growing so rapidly in the market. The market is shifting here. You know, just think about volume as an influencer, but not really a driver. And so it could be a little bit of a headwind. It could be a little bit of a tailwind. But the fundamental growth of the business continues on independent of that. And we used to spend a lot of time you know, showing the historical curve there and showing how volumes went up and down over time just to to explain that because, you know, the average investor, all they think about is, you know, our interest rates down, which, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the economy is good. If its interest rates are down, it may be that we're in a, a market where, you know, there's not a lot of jobs. There's not a lot of this. There's not a lot of people buying homes. So, you know, there was a lot of education going on there. The other thing we tried to really do is to help people get to this idea of what we'd call base revenue, which was a subscription, this idea of fixed variable, which was <laughs> the idea that no matter what goes on, right, if the market is at a certain amount of volume, even though people pay transactionally, you can think of it like an annuity, right? And then, the last piece of it, kind of the, the last piece of the variable on the edge, that's the true variable. And again, some investors really understood that. Others never made that complete connection. So, you know, again, when the market was going up, it was great. Uh, when the market had any potential variability to it, had to do a lot of education with the market and continually reinforce that. And, you know, it just kind of came with the, uh, uh, the landscape.
0: While we're talking about variability of the public markets, just to cast your mind back to, I think, November 2013, there were a couple of quarters where there were, as you you mentioned before, tiny little misses, and yet there were huge movements downwards in the stock price. Yes. That, you know, I think you know, stock price probably at maybe $20 yep. uh, at yep. the time. There was some speculation that there were some private equity mm-hmm. suitors sort of uh, circling around the business, but... In somewhat of a, a unique case, the board really took a long-term view on the business. They yeah. understood the value for you know the five, seven-year yeah. proposition. Yeah. At the time, maybe you can give some insight into how this played out because often what happens is boards go into protection mode. Yeah. The threat of liability is hanging over their heads. They're not necessarily doing what's best for, for shareholders in the long term and so you have this this tension.
1: Yeah. And it was, it was kind of, we had gone, I think the stock had been probably in the mid-30s and came down to 20 at that, that time frame. And, you know, invariably, because we had this, you know, at that time it was a smaller business, but, you know, a, a great business that was, had such momentum, you know, was solving such a big problem in the industry. Um, there were many private equity firms that had been watching us at at the size we were at, and You know when that price dropped down, um, reached out and wanted to to do something, and again as a public board, you know, looking at where the stock was and looking at where the the market might be in the following year, we felt we had like our fiscal obligation to consider that right. You know, in terms of you know the fiduciary, and you know again, I think we looked at it from a standpoint of you know what is the best thing what is the long term value here and if we think about if somebody comes to the table and they can pay enough of a premium and you know you do the npv on it and it's it it has enough of a premium to take enough risk off the table over a significant horizon you know we'd say you know we might have had to make a really tough decision you know what ended up happening is they they just didn't get to our to our hurdle and you know, we said, you know, even though there's a, a significant premium here, the best thing in terms of the shareholders as like, let's call it the, the primary constituency, but we're obviously, you know, I am, especially as a CEO, thinking about all the constituents, you know, customers, partners, employees, just didn't make sense to do it. Now, it's interesting, the the, the firm that, you know, all they had to do was probably get uh, a couple hundred thousand more and they probably would have taken it and they would have made a, a killing, but they uh, they didn't. And, uh, you know, the, the story went forward and, you know, we continued to grow and execute. And, but they were involved, uh, a number of them were involved coming around back in, in 2019 as well.
0: I think it's worth rounding out this story by saying that the share price over the next five years then went 5x to $100. Yeah, so yeah. there were plenty of uh, public market investors that were very happy that Ellie May was not taken private in, in 2013. I guess, as, as was I. <laughs> yeah, I i can imagine and then just to fast forward i guess it's worth contrasting that with your experience in, in early 2019 where ellie again missed two quarters only just stock price got hammered to sixty dollars yeah. and tom of bravo came along and and offered a, a nice premium ended up buying the company for, yeah. for 3.7 billion if possible i'd love to hear some transaction insight
1: yeah uh happy to to do that um there's actually a very entertaining proxy you can read as well It's like Mr. Cor goes to Washington and meets all these people. Um, so you know it, it was you know a, a similar dynamic, little little different uh, i'd say you know the, the dynamic in 13 was a dynamic that was very i 'd say more specific to our industry, so the you know, broader things were probably still being positive. Um, but, you know, the market hadn't really engaged in the purchase side. And that was what kind of we were nervous about that. And so we went through the process and made the decision. In, in 18, you know, again, if you remember the broad housing market, um, as we hit summer of 18, interest rates had soared probably about 100 basis points. Home price appreciation in the U.S. was, you know, way up. Inventory was tight. And what everybody thought was going to be a, um, a steady market Really froze up, mm. and to the point where you know uh, we were seeing it in our customers. You know, refis had dwindled down. The purchase market, people were very anxious. They become frustrated in terms of buying homes and being in these bidding wars. We'd hear about you know a dozen people bidding and losing, and it just people had become frustrated. So they were settling back in, and so we we kind of conveyed to the market. You know, right now we don't think things are going to get likely better. Till next spring, and that was kind of the consensus of the market. That's kind of what I was hearing, you know, uh, at the annual conference, uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association, and so that was kind of our our horizon there. That's you know, as a public company, we had to convey that message. That was the appropriate thing. So that hit the stock, and then if you remember, you know, as we went into um, fall '18, the the tech market in general. Got, got hit pretty hard. I mean, you know, obviously the lowest point of the Dow in recent history was the end of '18. Mm-hmm. You know, we're starting to talk a little bit about that these days as well. And so the stock came down pretty pretty significantly. And when, once that happened, you know, all these private equity firms started uh, sending me messages. Hey, we'd love to come talk to you. I said, well, we can talk absolutely. We have to talk. And so there was a, a process where some of the you know the top firms came out reached us very quickly. It, it moved very quickly right after, um, after Thanksgiving. And again, the dynamic was, you know, we definitely have a long-term view of where this can go. But I'd say our viewpoint was likely things were not going to get better at that point based on what everybody knew until probably the second half of 19 at the earliest based on everything everybody was seeing. And so if we say, this is how the, you know, what's going to happen with the business, what will happen in 20, what will happen in 21, um, if you play it out, you know, what is the company worth for shareholders with that level of risk? And so is there somebody that is going to come to the table with a, a value for shareholders that makes it attractive? We were also worried because there were some activists starting to take positions and we were also concerned about some top tech players that had been watching us and, you know, might take this as an opportunity to come in and grab the company at a um, at a real discount. And, you know, from that standpoint, my viewpoint was that would not be a great outcome for actually shareholders because it probably would not be as a, as a premium as these private equity guys, because the private equity guys saw the long-term curve, mm. so they were willing to really get aggressive. It wouldn't be the best outcome for our customers or partners or our employees or, you know, us continuing on with the culture and the vision. You know, most software companies at that time that were interested, my expectation is that we'd probably come in and probably dismantle the company quite a bit. Yeah. And the attraction for me with private equity, in particular, Tomer Bravo – was I could get a great price for shareholders, but I also could continue to you know drive towards the North Star, keep maintaining the culture, keep delivering to our customers. And so to me it, it felt like a, a real you know win win win. we were we were fortunate because again, as a public company, you can't really just pick who you want, right? You got to make sure that the economics and you know the deal, closing, timeliness, is in the best interest of shareholders you know, versus other opportunities. And you know, Toma Bravo did that, and they've been a great partner so far.
0: And they have a fine track record in, in creating value. You touched on it uh, in terms of how keen you were to maintain the culture. And everything since then has happened behind closed doors, but yeah. I'm just sort of thinking out loud. There's no doubt you know, the way they operate. They usually gear the business up, let's say, seven to ten times they grow revenue dramatically, they rip costs out, which in software world is usually people. <laughs> so how have you thought about the importance of maintaining the culture while they have been owners of the business?
1: Yeah, so their their viewpoint of the world is profitable growth, which in, in many ways is kind of, you know, was the way I used to think of the world, even as a public company, because we were being pushed as a public company in some ways to growth at any cost, right? you You'd really try to push your growth just to satisfy that side of the public market, and all growth is not equal, right? Um, doing extra this or extra that after margins aren't there, not necessarily on the bottom line the smartest thing, but that's what the public market might want. Tomo Bravo definitely comes at it with this idea of you don't need to grow at this level. you can grow low double digits, combine that with you know smart growth, and that's the kind of you know business. You know, that we, we think you can, can optimize. As, as you know, right, when we laid out our public plan, a couple of, uh, you know, investor uh, days in the past, you know, we laid out a plan to get towards a billion of revenue. We laid out a plan to get to 40% plus EBITDA, to get to very high cash flows. So, you know, we, we were on that trajectory. We saw that leverage. You know, we were going to take a little bit longer to get there, because in many ways, we weren't going to be rewarded by the, the public market if we didn't continue on a certain level of, of growth in the short term. With, with Tomer Bravo, we can actually do things a little quicker. And we can do a lot of things quicker, like infrastructure investment. And some of the things that we're getting hard to do quarterly, mm. because worrying about you know, if you don't do it right and you have an issue on your quarterly report, you, know, you create all kinds of problems for yourselves. Here, in terms of scaling the infrastructure we can do that and they they're fine with that and we can don't have to worry about it. There's no question, you know, um we had to make some adjustments in employees. But the inverse of that is that when you're growing very rapidly and trying to just keep pushing growth, sometimes you don't hire every single teammate that perfectly fits in. You don't you know you you're not as disciplined about that. And so we definitely had some opportunity there. And so, yeah, it's painful to make any adjustments in the organization, um, and it's painful not only for the folks you have to do it for, but more importantly the teammates that are still here, and you want to do it with, with caring and sensitivity. And it obviously created a, a set of change, right, and you know, having to manage through that change. Now, the nice thing that happened in 19 was we were expecting the headwind of the industry, the, the headwind became a tailwind. So that was positive. And so the thing that we had to you know, deal with, which you know, always deal with different you know, challenges and opportunities in a business, was helping people get through this transition. And you know, probably you know, one of the biggest things is making sure that the employees and the teammates know that this is Ellie May, you know, Tomo Bravo is just an investor. You know, we, we had venture capital investors in the past We had public investors just previously and many, many of them, and these guys are are a private investor, right? In all those scenarios, two things always stayed constant, the North Star and the culture and us running the business. So nothing really changes with this. Now, the fact is they read stories about other private equity firms that do this and that and the other thing. And so the, the dynamic is you can't just tell them, trust me, you can't just tell them, you know nothing's going to change. You can say that, but you just got to keep communicating and reinforcing and answering questions, and just showing them along the way. And you know we got through 19, um, and it's very interesting because I'd say that incredible performance by the business and the company. You know, obviously some some you know friction and bumps as we made changes, but I'd say the leadership and the organization is probably the strongest and most aligned than it has been in the five years since I've been CEO. So even though, you know, as we ended 18, we probably had a little bit of normal disconnectedness, as we went through this and we had to make some changes, forcing people to really think about this idea of one team and one score really brought folks together. And there's always opportunities to continue doing that. It is never a, we're done. But I'd say, you know, as we enter 20, we're probably the strongest we've ever been at that level.
0: One last theme I'd love to discuss very quickly because you've been so generous with your time is, is just on you. Uh, yeah. 18 years here, five years as CEO, but a high-powered executive. I know you're deep into your family life. You love golf. And yeah. obviously the Ellie yeah. Mae sponsor, the Ellie May Classic on the, the web.com tour. If you ever need someone to caddy, just uh <laughs> look me up. But I I'm curious as to your own high performance routines and, and what keeps you at the top of your game.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I and I do have an incredible family, uh wife of uh you know, twenty seven years, three great kids. Um one of the things I think you always have to do, you know, as a as any leader. Uh, and probably more so um, as a leader is you know managing that balance, that balance that is you know both being in the business but the physical health, the mental health, because obviously you deal with a lot of the stresses, you internalize a lot of them because you know you want to convey a a level of calm to the organization, but you know obviously you're not unfeeling, you just you're feeling it inside because you have to. You know the littlest things you do as a CEO, and this is what I've learned over the last few years: eye movements, how you walk, how you respond, are interpreted in ways you wouldn't even imagine. And so, you know, to to make sure you have that balance, and you know, family is 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 the most important thing, right? And that's what we say here at Eli May as well. So we want people to, you know make sure that they do what's needed to, to balance that. And it's not a pure balance, right? You know, sometimes you can't balance, but, you know, you don't miss those things, those family things with your, with your kids and your significant other. So, you know, that's really important to me. I mean, I, I, I work out a lot. I try to play golf. I never play enough. As, you know, most people who play golf never is, say that. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I have a piano in my office at home. I kind of screw around with that a little bit. And, you know, try to set a great example for, for the family. And um, I love musicals, actually. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really into theater and musicals, and my, and my, my daughters are as well. So that's uh, something we're connected on. And, you know, I feel, I've, I feel very fortunate. And uh, I've been here for 18 years, and I never thought I'd be anywhere in the tech business for 18 years. But it's been an incredible journey, and we still have, you know, a lot ahead of us. It's been incredibly fun, challenging, through all kinds of different changes over the years. But it's incredibly rewarding, and probably the biggest thing is the folks here, right? Um, the teammates, the culture, it just, it's just a,
0: it's a great place. Jonathan, I've loved every minute talking to you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure.